Hello? Can you still hear me? Hi, everyone. This is MC Owens. If you'd like to support the Lotus Underground and these Dharma transmissions, please consider becoming a Patreon member. You can go to patreon.com backslash mcowens or follow the links at lotusunderground.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the... This is another MCOens transmission. Hello? Yeah, we good? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, welcome everybody to the Dharma Doors. I'm MC Owens. Uh, and tonight, uh, as usual, we're going to talk about a sutra. Um, and tonight we're going to be talking about the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, this is probably, arguably, especially in the world today, one of the most famous sutras. And it's basically right up there with the Heart Sutra. But of course, the the Satipatthana, which is the kind of, the, there are many sutras on this idea of mindfulness, but this is the go-to spot for understanding the Buddhist idea of mindfulness, which is this word sati. Um, and because of the rise of the mindfulness movement in America, um, this sutra has just gone skyrocketed. Like, this is the go-to spot to learn about what is Buddhism, what is Buddhism all about. And, and in many ways, even the Buddha himself in the sutra says, this is the ekayana, this is the single path, the di- which some people translate as the direct path to enlightenment. This is it. So it's kind of, um, there's, there's good reason to, to refer to it. Uh, it's also sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness because it focuses on these four foundations of mindfulness. We're going to go through all these words, by the way, but it focuses on these four things, the body, sensations, mind or mind states, and then dharmas or dharma. Again, I'm going to talk about each of these, what they mean. And in fact, I think what I'll do tonight is sort of break down the sutra, sort of break down it, what it's talking about, break down some of these terms. And I would like to actually get us all very familiar with with the contents of the sutra, like what it's talking about and all of that. And then I'll read from it. And I hope to just read straight, but by then you'll be so familiar with what it's about to say that it'll be like a, you know, a murder mystery that you already know where this is going. So you'll really be able to dig into it. So, uh, great. So it's coming to us from the Majima Nikaya, the collection of the middle length discourses of the Buddha. It's number 10. And the first 10 sutras of the Majima Nikaya constitute what's called the Mula Pariyaya Vaga. And the Mula, which is the root, these are the discourses on the Mula, on the root. The root cause of suffering, the root problem, the roots. This is Roots Buddhism tonight. Roots. Okay, so... Roots Buddhism coming from this, uh, these first 10 sutras are all dealing with the root cause. This is the 10th. It's called the Satipatthana. Sati is Pali. Sanskrit, if you're curious, is Smriti. Smriti, Sati, same idea. Although they are actually a little different. I wanted to talk about that. Um, this word sati, which in Sanskrit is smriti, smriti actually has a lot to do with the memory. There's a lot to do with memory. And it has a lot to do with sort of remembering. And what I mean by that is, is that in the kind of pre-Buddhist days, smriti was this idea of like, 
uh, bringing something to mind, recalling. And in a, in, in, there's a lot of ways that this functioned, but you could think of it as a, a, you know, fallen heroes, great fallen heroes of the past. And so that they not be forgotten, so that their efforts not be forgotten, we bring them to mind, we remember them. And that was sort of this initial, I mean, we're talking ar- archaic idea of shmirti, of remembrance. Okay, so thousands and thousands of year old idea for recalling or bringing something to mind. You know, and it's hard to really, um, I think it's really hard to think about these ideas in the modern world because we have, you know, such, um, well, first of all, we have like, you know, outsourced our brain. Right, and so a lot of the way that we think now is with this uh, in tandem with the device and all of that, and so our very act of remembering has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years. But then, even with the advent of media, television, our sense of memory has changed a lot, right? And so it's hard, I think it's hard for us to really dig deep in our our DNA, as it were, all the way back to the some really really archaic ways of thinking and remembering. And what, what I'm getting at in particular is like, yeah, there, like we, you can remember something in terms of like, you know, uh, how old were, da, 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 oh, he's, you know, this old. Like you can remember things, but there's a certain way that you really can bring something to mind, you know, visualize. So now we're, you see where this is sort of slipping into visualization. A little bit more than just remembering, it's about bringing it recalling it to mind and then holding it in one's mind. So that's all kind of wrapped up in smrti, which again in the Pali Buddhist tradition is this word sati. But sati or mindfulness, and, and again, this is the name of the Buddhist game today. Mindfulness, the mindfulness movement, insight, meditation, all of these ideas of the mindfulness or insight kind of uh, movement is all about understanding this. And I wanted to give tonight, um, well, I guess a very quick explanation, definition of how I use sati or smrti or mindfulness. So the, the second part of this that it, it will show you how, I, or how they're using sati is this idea of the patana, a foundation. And there's a little bit of a debate about what exactly is being referred to here, but for tonight, I think the way to think of a foundation, a, pat, a patana, is this idea of having a mind that's really well uh, distracted down here. We're going to get to these mind states, but having a mind that's like kind of rather distracted. And it's sort of like, yeah, you're thinking about this, but you're thinking about that. You've you got a lot of worries, you know, we've got uh, like this election coming up. You've got all this stuff, right? So you've got all these different things on your mind. And the idea is, is that to varying degrees, we're quite distracted and we have our minds divided on a bunch of different things. What a patana is, what a foundation is, is a, is a object uh, that one can place one's attention on, right? So the foundation is this idea of resting or placing one's attention or in this sense, mindfulness on something and ultimately we're going to be placing our mindfulness on our bodies, sensations of the bodies, states of mind, and then ultimately these kind of dharmic truths. We're working our way up. We're working our way up. So the idea of 
the patana is placing one's attention somewhere. But then this is sati patana. So it's not just about ta- uh, taking your attention and moving towards an object. But now it's about sati patana. Mindfulness established on something. And now mindfulness is a little different than just being aware of something. Because I could be aware of multiple things. So this is where I want to kind of just quickly introduce my idea of mindfulness. Um, I've shown this to people before. But if you imagine uh, this pie graph as being a pie graph of your attention or of your mindlessness, let's say, right? Of, Of all these varying things that you have your mind on in varying degrees. It could be your stomach, it could be this, it could be that, a bunch of different things, right? And what I'm gonna suggest is that we think about the circumference of this pie chart. And what I'm gonna suggest is, is that you could think of mindfulness as if you were to practice mindfulness, Meditation of various sorts, calming down, focusing one's intention, bringing it to an object, maybe your breath. Let's, uh, just for the sake of convenience, I'm going to start where the Buddha starts. With the body, the first of the four, and with the breath, the first aspect of the body. So if I bring my attention to the breath, so now my breath is one of these, right? And then I have all the other ones. But as I bring my attention to just my breath, maybe, hopefully, I stop worrying a little bit about certain things. I just sort of forget about them. And so those go away. And so what I'm suggesting is is that as the number of pi pieces of this pi graph shrink, the circumference gets bigger. And there's an equation almost Meaning that the more things on your mind, the smaller that circumference gets. And the less things on your mind, the broader it gets. And what you could imagine is that this equation keeps going. And to the point where I have this sort of giant circle, giant circle that's just divided into two. (laughs) Me and the object of my attention. Me and the breath. My mindfulness and the breath. And that's all. I'm not aware of where I am, who I am, or anything, just the breathing. If I were at that point where it was a pie chart of just two things, me and the breath, the circumference could be quite large at that point. Backing up, what I'm suggesting is, is that consciousness or mindfulness, if it's split up into too many things, consciousness feels like it's between the ears and behind the eyes, that your consciousness is about, oh, yay big. But as you, again, you do the meditation and drop uh, various things that are distracting you and bringing it to just focused attention, all of a sudden you're feeling like you're maybe a little out here a little more. And I don't mean this literally, but I mean it in terms of you're feeling a little not as constricted and held in the body, just a little broader. Well, keep going and keep going and keep going until, again, there's just the two and the circumference of the circle is practically the size of the universe until you reach that magical moment where the line between you and the object actually even disappears. And you would be, and then reaching a liberated state of equanimity. 
which by the way is down here, right? We're in the fourth category all the way at the bottom. Because yes, this schema that the sutra, that the Buddha lays out in the sutra, the schema does move this way to that way and this way to that way. And I'm going to get into this a little bit because there's a lot of... Um, a lot of different teachers of mindfulness that teach this a lot of different ways. And I'm always trying to be that teacher that tells you all of them <laughs> without saying, this is the one. I'm not a believer in the one, but I like to share as much as I can. Questions? <laughs> um, you were interchanging the words mindfulness with consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um. Yep. Um, in that first pie chart, or even in the last one you described, you said there's me and the breath. Yeah. So, but where in all those is awareness itself? Aware, in other words, awareness that you are aware, mindfulness that you are that you're conscious. Now I just use all four. Words. You you did you did. Right. You can hold on. Okay. Yeah. Um, but on that note, yes, I'm jumping around. It, it does get tricky. Uh, with these terms, awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, all of that. On the mindfulness, I would, I would like to lean into that English word mindfulness. And what I mean by that is, is that I kind of joked about this being mindlessness. The idea being that our mind is so divided that we're kind of mindless in that way. Scatterbrain is a term, right? And so this, when I speak of the circumference getting bigger, that's what I mean by full, getting fuller, getting more full of mind. So full of mind, in fact, that we eventually reach places where that's all it is, right? We get to the state of infinite consciousness. As a, as that's it. It's just infinite consciousness. So tr- words are tricky, and they, it just gets trickier, right? Yeah, because when it's like me and the breath, it's like, aren't I the breath? Aren't? Right, but we are we do recognize that there is a observer mm-hmm. of the breathing. So the right. me and the me and the breath implies the observer. Yes. Implies awareness. Yes. Of the breath yeah. or of the fact that I'm aware of the breath. Mm-hmm. Okay. So okay. So mindfulness, mindfulness. Um, one could be. Let's start here. One could be. Mindful, have sati of anything, really. That's certainly um, uh, possible, is the idea that one could then use as an anchor of one's attention, a bowl, a Buddha, a can, like any number of things. And I often mention that there is this kind of list of 40 Buddha-approved objects. But the basic idea, though, is that that act of being mindful I could be on anything. But what this sutra is about is the Buddha outlining the single path, this ekayana, which he says is the path basically, basically from the deluded, ignorant state that we all find ourselves born into all the way to enlightenment. Like this is the path. And there are some teachers, again, various teachers teach this different ways, but there are some teachers that teach this process that I'm going to talk more about and then read from they describe doing this whole process in a sit. Some do. Meaning like in one sit, you go from deluded, ignorant, enlightened, liberated, nirvanic, nirvana. Ooh. Um, 
that could be. I, again, I'm not here to say anything is not happening or could happen. Um, but let's start breaking down what the whether it could happen in a night or a sit or not. I don't know. But let's start breaking down the process. Yeah. So the Buddha will outline and issue at the beginning these four foundations, the body. So really just these four things in the boxes. This is the thing to be most aware of or most uh, to remember. The body is this. And we were gonna, these are finer ways of thinking of the body. But when the Buddha says kaya, uh, but when the Buddha says the body, he is referring very much to the physical body that we find ourselves in. <laughs> that we find ourselves perceiving ourselves to be in and all of that. And again, he begins the process with the breath, right? Just being aware of the breath. And once we know what all these words mean, the Buddha's description of how to do this is better than mine. So I'll just do the words, but he focuses on the breathing, the breath, moving on to posture, meaning being mindfully aware of your posture. <laughs> and what that means is being mindfully aware of whether you're sitting erect, whether you're slouching, whether your legs are crossed, whether they're not, being aware of everything. And this movement, and I, I can't really like stress this enough, that what's happening here with the awareness of the breath and then awareness of the body, meaning if you're sitting, standing, walking, laying down, however you're moving, when we get to number three here, to full awareness, I mean, the Buddha is describing a mindfulness, but like a really deep state of mindful awareness of the body, like really deep. And when I say really deep, what I mean by full awareness, we're taught, and this is how some people teach it. The people that do this in a sit, I don't know if they're teaching it this way, but other people are describing an a full aware, uh, 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 an example of full awareness would be, um, I've, I've got a, a bowl of rice, right? I'm aware of the sensation of the eating of it. I'm aware of it in my mouth. I'm aware of it going down my throat. I'm aware of it entering into my stomach. I'm aware of it entering into my duodenum. I'm aware of it entering into my colon. I'm aware of it all the way until the next morning, I'm aware of it. And I've been aware of it the whole time because I am fully aware of my body. Everything that's going on in it, everywhere every meal still is, every bit of feces, everything that's in my body, everything that I am, I'm fully aware of and I'm fully aware of what state it's in. I have no nervous, uh, you know, some people that sort of, oh, so yeah. I, did, I wasn't aware I was, I was tapping my foot. No, at this stage, you are fully aware of everything you're doing in every way, shape, or form. So the descriptions of full awareness are so like, whoa, that's pretty heavy. And I can conceive of how such a state is achievable, but it seems pretty serious. So be aware of that like as we move down, that these are getting progressively more intense body parts, and I wanted to put, um, uh, well, I won't write it, but there's a way to interpret all of this in a very classical Theravadan way, which is it's not just aware of the body parts, it's, it's actually the awareness of the 
the foulness of the body parts is the actual description of it. So it's not even just being aware of the body parts, but having a certain disinterest or distaste in them. Okay? And what body parts are, again, which relates to the full awareness, is that a, a person in this state of mindful awareness of body parts is aware of the heart thumping, versus the lungs, versus the spleen, versus the duod, versus all of it, is aware of every aspect of themselves in parts, body parts. So not as a, just a single being, which is how we normally think of ourselves. We have a name to describe this configuration. This is actually about breaking that all apart to where you would literally be aware of every individual eyelash, right? They've described this, aware of every hair on your body. <laughs> I know that such a state of awareness seems a little unfathomable, but that's what they're talking about. Once the body has been completely kind of completely delegoized into all of its constituent little parts, then that is analyzed in terms of the four elements. Earth, solidity, right? Being aware of the solid aspects of my being, being aware of the liquid aspects of my being, the piss, the, all the effluvia, all the water aspect, being aware of the fire aspect of my body, the temperature, the heat, the tapas, and then finally the fourth element, being aware of the air element, which is not being aware of the breath, it's actually being aware of the air element pervading all of the body parts that I am fully aware of in my being. Everybody follow me on this? The last, the sixth, which is sometimes broken up into nine individual steps, so that this would actually go six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way down. But just as an easy one, it's the nine decomposing states of a corpse. And the meditation, and the Buddha supposedly advised his followers to go to a charnel ground, to go to a cemetery where there were bodies that somebody that just died, somebody that died a week ago, month ago, all the way down to a skeleton. So nine stages of decomposition. And the meditation is, that's me someday. Or that's all of that someday. That's all of that. All of this is going there someday. All of this is going there someday. Until you're finally staring at the skeleton and you're like, all of this is going there someday. Now I want you to be aware that there are many schools of Buddhism, especially Mahayana schools of Buddhism, that say, don't do this. That meditating on a corpse is not helpful. I just want you to know that not all Buddhists are into the charnel ground meditations. Just FYI. Yeah. Just as a comment that so much of the thinkers right now are talking about power in society that we are not doing that, and we don't have this, like, you know, everybody's talking about Ram Das that is in the past, I'm wondering. Yeah, but we are so afraid we don't witness that. Yep. And we don't have any awareness and we so easily ignorant and greedy. Yep. Right, so. It's a very, very powerful practice, and I agree with you that it it's sort of like I think maybe a lot of times when I when I've read the the Buddhist texts that say don't do that, it's because they've worried that the it's at a time when Buddhism has gotten so negative that it's like bordering on that nihilism of like whatever. And so they're like, yeah, maybe we don't need to be going to the cemetery all the time, guys. 
Like, you know? But I agree with you that there might be a way that it not necessarily needs to come back in that sense, but some confrontation with the process of dying and all of that. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. So, good comment. I kind of wonder how eventually the uh, foundational uh, mindfulness on the body, and in particular the four elements, the fire, liquidity, movement, and space, develop into the practices of Tantra. And this management and work with the inner energies, that if you start like contemplating the heat of your body, well, eventually you have the development of the inner uh, tumor practices, the inner heat practices, right? And like the more we go down the stack, the more it starts like appearing like sources of inspirations for, for the tantra. Mm. Even the decomposition yep. part, you have like the child practices in Tibet where mm -hmm. they always walk going into graveyards and such. So, yep. just thoughts I was having on hearing this. Yeah, totally. Totally. Any other comments or thoughts on the body? No. So, so is this, this, this was, this was a, a, a system before the Buddha? No. This so is this, the Buddhist this, system. This is the Buddhist, so not the yoga, not the aesthetics who were, you know. There's obviously going to be some crossover. The Buddha didn't, again, he didn't invent the idea of shmurti or sati or mindfulness, not by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And definitely in the yoga sutras, they're going to be addressing that. But this system is what makes Buddhism Buddhism in that, in that sense. Yeah, this is the, the system. It's actually what makes it such a great sutra is that it's like the whole system. And in fact, having it, you know, broken it all the way down the way I did with even all, laying out all the different dharmas, it's like, this is all you need. <laughs> Kind of. You've got all the different dharmas. You've got all the ideas. You know. So, comments or questions on the body. And again, I just want you to keep in mind that what we're talking about is a distracted mind uh, that's in the past, thinking about things that you know happened, thinking about the future, thinking about what could happen, thinking about making some plans, being in the present moment but being distracted. So being divided in time, being divided. And then the practice of satya mindfulness is, is, again, whatever it is, bringing one's attention, anchor it. <laughs> anchor it. Don't let it get all distracted. And the Buddha is saying, but I'll tell you what, if you want to know the single path all the way, start with your breath. Come into awareness of your body. Start with your breath. And then move through those. And then we'll move on to sensations. Right, And so what it is, is this is awareness of these things. And I'm going to keep stressing this, that the practice is awareness of these things. <laughs> it, 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 it's, I, it seems like the simplest thing in the universe. You mean just think about this? <laughs> yes, just think about that. <laughs> Try it. Um, so these sensations, Vedana, right? Let's, uh, the, um, these are sensations often translated as feelings. But I'm not a big fan of feelings because in English, the word feelings is more emotional and or it can tend to be more emotional. And what Vedana sensations are is that, yes, they are sensations. So they're from sensory organs, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and then ultimately the, even the brain as sensory organs stimulating. And the idea is, is that we have these sensations 
And those sensations are interpreted by our body, not our brain necessarily yet, by the way. This is all happening in the sensory organ, like the eyeball itself. You don't even need a brain. There could be an eyeball in a jar of liquid, and it would, it would be doing this, which is that it has either pleasant, painful, or neutral reactions to things. It either perceives things as being harmful and negative, or sorry, harmful and negative, or pleasant and therefore positive, or neutral. And the idea of Buddhism, and again, this is the whole, this is it, this is the path. The idea of Buddhism is that on a cellular level, on an organ level, we are having incalculable reactions to things in one of three ways. We either want more of it, we want less of it, or it's totally neutral. And I'm going to share with you one example of this, but I want you to to keep in mind that what I'm about to tell you goes for everything, 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 every sensory input you're having goes this way. Imagine you're sitting in a cafe, doing a little work, and they're playing some music, right? Cafes often play music, right? Imagine your favorite song comes on, right? And you're sitting there and it's just like, Right? It's like, yeah, turn it up. Right? Mm -hmm. Then that song comes on and you're like, ah, like some, you know, whatever it is, you have a negative reaction to that song. And then you're just like, (laughs) do you shut that up? You know, so you're having a negative reaction versus the positive reaction. You know what this one is? It's that song you didn't even hear. You worked right through it. You had a completely neutral reaction to it. You weren't like, turn it up. You weren't like, turn it off. It's because you actually didn't even hear it. You heard it, obviously. You were in the cafe with everybody else. It was on the speakers. But it's to the point where if I asked you, what was the last song that was just on the radio? You would be like, I don't know. I quote, kind of wasn't paying attention. That is a neutral reaction to something. You, you don't care one way or another, right? And in that sense, those things tend to just move through us and they don't work us one way or the other. And so Buddhists are actually very interested in those neutral reactions to things that don't get us all worked up one way or the other. What the practice of mindfulness is on this is being aware, again, in a kind of full awareness way of being aware of your reactions to things. So that you're in the cafe and you're like, huh, I had a positive reaction to that song. I see what it's doing to me. Even better. Rather than being like, hey, will you turn that noise off? You would be like, huh, I'm having a negative reaction to this song. What's up with that? If you wanted to do a little Vipassana, you might ask yourself, why am I having a negative reaction to this song? And then you might start digging back in the archives of your mind and you might even realize, oh, because this song was on when she dumped me that night. That's why. Oh my gosh, look at that. So that is a little peek into what the practice of this is about. It's about being aware of your sensations to things, your reactions. I sometimes like to translate Vedana as reactions, sensory reactions. It's actually kind of far less complicated than it kind of seems. But what's interesting about 
being, what's interesting about being from a Buddhist point of view is that what we are, quotes around the me, or right, what we are is the buildup of our sensory reactions to things. You know, because I have different sensory reactions to songs than you do. I have different sensory reactions to food. I like different food. Maybe I like spicy. Maybe you don't. Da-da-da-da-da. And so what I am, one aspect of what this is, is the buildup of all of the things that this likes and doesn't like or finds neutral. And it's what makes this unique and not the Jordan thing. That's a whole other configuration of sensations and reactions to things, negative and positive, and there's probably a lot of overlap, right? But the idea is is that these are unique to me, and the most important part about this is that if we are mindful of these things, again, if you're in the cafe and the negative reaction happens, and you're like, wow, I'm having a negative reaction to that, you could stop it. (laughs) What happens if we're mindless if we're not mindful, what happens is is that we don't get on top of it, and so we react. Then we're up at the counter yelling at the guy, will you turn this music off? Look, I paid good money to come in here. And it's all, and he's getting mad, and it's spinning out of control. Our world's out of control because of mindlessness. If you see what I'm saying, if everybody was practicing this and taking that moment and being like, oh, wow, I'm having a bad reaction to this. What's my problem? If everybody was doing that, it, things could be moving in a different direction. But again, what I want you to see is, and I'm not finger pointing, I'm always pointing the finger here. What the problem of being is, is that we're not always doing that, the mindfulness. And so in a samsaric way, we get trapped in our sensations. Meaning again, I'm, I'm just reacting. The guy cut me off. He took my parking spot. Something must be done about this. Really? Does something really need to be done about this? Like, will something really be resolved if I tell that person off? Like, the guy stole my parking spot. What will really be resolved if I yell at him? Well, actually, time out. What's really being resolved by me being so upset about this? Right? So, but if I don't do that, then it's, we're off. We're off. Just spinning. You guys see what I'm saying? So this is a very important one in terms of putting the brakes on. And being like, oh, what's going on here? Right? Okay, so those are sensations, and it's about being mindful. Also, I want to um, note that, um, as we'll hear in the breath, it's about just being aware if your breath is like long or short, shallow or deep. It's not, don't, we don't judge the breath as being like, oh, I'm not breathing deep enough. No, no, you're just aware of how you're breathing. That's good enough. The same is going on here. We don't judge these things. It's not like, oh, I'm having another bad reaction. Bad, Michael, bad. No. It's about being aware of these things and actually not judging them as, as better or worse. Just being aware of them. Um, question. Yeah. So, um, the, you have the body calling and then you have the sensations calling. It's like you have the, the body just seems kind of like alone. And then the sensations, is it supposed to be the connection to the world around us? Um. Like it's the reaction that the body has. Like, because it seems like when we're talking about the body and we're talking about awareness and this and that and blah, 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 it's like so in ourselves, right? Yep. 
and then the sensations, that's kind of putting the two together, the outside world and the body coming into contact, contact with the outside world and actually having a reaction or non-reaction, yep. which is still a reaction anyways. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of... Yeah, I think it's very interesting the way you're thinking about it. And I think you're totally right that, that, it, that this is sort of all, I mean, this one you are observing a decomposing corpse, but the meditation is about, I'm, I'm going to die someday. So it's still rather that way. Yeah, interesting that this is when this comes into contact with the outside. But I do think the focus is still on like um, the internal reaction in that way. And, you know, if, if you think of just even something like anxiety that one feels like in their stomach or whatever, it would just be an awareness of, oh, I'm having, oh, my stomach's constricted as a, you know, and now we're moving away from awareness of the stomach as a body part and its position, but we're actually realizing that I'm having this kind of tight negative reaction to whatever it is. Or if it's another one might be like temperature, like it's too warm in here. I'm having a negative reaction to that. It's actually just sort of neutral in here or whatever. But so it is inside outside, but the focus is still, I think, very much about the reactions that are happening here and noticing whether they're getting me upset, making me happy, or again, just totally neutral. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> Any other questions about Vedana, the sensations? Okay. Um, on the note of your question, though, these are getting more subtle in that sense, that the awareness of the breath, it's, the breath is a little hard to miss. Sensations are a little tricky, though, because you have to be real honest with yourself. And it, that's subtle. And I say that only to say that now we're getting even more subtle. So what we're talking about with this third category is chitta, what's, which gets translated as mind, but I actually prefer mind states. What a chitta is, is a mind state, and it's actually a, a, a configuration of one's consciousness, perception, and conditioning. Um, chitta is a very elusive term in Buddhism. It's yet a, even another one that we get to add to this list of like awareness, mindfulness, mind, consciousness, you know, so many words. But if we understand that consciousness is just this present time awareness of something, as something. It's much more uh, like a nuts and bolts of thinking. Chitta, just by looking at these, greedy mind state, a hate-filled mind state, a deluded mind state, contracted, distracted. So these are sort of like mental, like mind states, ways of being, right? And you could think of like being uh, desirous, um, greedy. The text here in classic Theravada fashion uh, uses the classic lust, right? Because the Theravadans are obsessed with sex, and so everything has to be about sex, right? But I want you to... So lust is like, yeah, that's, that's an aspect of greed. <laughs> that's one of them. But there's a lot of ways that you can be, like, desirous. And so what they're talking about is a desirous mind state, that, that, you know, so if one is like, um, you know, whatever it is, the fancy car that you would like to have drives down the street or the whatever it is that you would like, that you want, to be in that state of wanting 
is a, a consciousness, a situation of one's consciousness that I'm consciously aware of that, you know, whatever car, ooh, that looks nice, I sure would like that. But there's a bit of our mental conditioning and the very perception that is all involved in that mind state that's being desirous of somebody else's object or whatever it is. And so the practice of mindfulness is to, in the same way as this, to be aware of that desirous, quote, greedy mind state or the lack thereof. Because the way this gets worded in the sutra is the, the practitioner of this knows when they're in a greedy mind state or they know when they're not in a greedy mind state. They know when they're hate-filled, when they're sitting there seething, right? And they know when they're not, when they're meted out, right? And again, the mindful awareness is being mindfully aware of that in the same way that you were just being mindfully aware of like, oh, I'm having a pleasant reaction to this. You're mindfully aware. Wow, that guy really pissed me off. I'm having a real hate-filled... Again, the idea is to try to get on top of this, to keep it from spinning too far out of control. Uh, Diluted versus undiluted or not diluted. These, by the way, are the three poisons, the kleshas, the so-called defilements. And so it's about being aware when the three poisons or when the three defilements, being aware of when they're active in you and being aware when they're not active in you. And again, not judging, saying, bad Michael, there you go doing it again. Because the, the magic of Buddhism, the magic of this teaching is that the awareness of these things brings them to neutrality. That's actually the magic of the Dharma, that bringing your awareness to them brings them to neutrality. Not being aware of them is what feeds the flame and allows the flame to grow. So these are the three poisons. These two are interesting. They do not have the opposite they, in the sutra, he just lists them as they know a contracted mind, they know a distracted mind. And just quickly about those terms, uh, it's helpful in a way to start with dis- distracted. The basic idea of a distracted mind is that. Whoa, what was that? Ooh, what was that? Ooh, ooh, right? Totally distractible, easily distracted, right? Co- contracted is when you are so oblivious to what's going on around you that you basically like throw your coat on the person next to you because you're so contracted. But this is not good, right? This is not meditation mindfulness contracted, right? This is so in my own universe that I'm completely oblivious to everybody being around me. You see the difference? And so, again, the practice of mindfulness is just knowing when you are contracted, knowing when your mind's distracted. And again, just being aware of that. Oh, wow, I really can't focus today. My mind's really distracted today. And again, the, the, not, the idea is that it will come to neutrality by being aware of it rather than running out of control. Questions about the bad ones? <laughs> Any questions? So four and five are still unwholesome. Then. They're unwholesome, but they're kind of their own little category because these are the three poisons which one is also aware of the opposite, the ungreedy, unhateful, undiluted. These are just kind of weird because they just kind of stand there. And then these are these four exalt or four wholesome states of mind that somewhat correspond to the four jhanas a little bit. 
So exalted, but he also knows an unexalted mind. So, um, very good with exalted. Yeah? Very high in that sense. Surpassed versus unsurpassed. So you're aware of surpassed and unsurpassed. And a, a way that I would suggest you think of surpassed is like, um, well, basically what it is is that a mind that is surpassed, it's gone beyond this and it knows it, if that makes sense. Versus unsurpassable, like if you had an unsurpassable mind, you would know there's nowhere else to go from here. That's unsurpassed. But knowing that I have a surpassable mind means I know there's more to go. There's more places to go here. I've got further to go. It would be like a musician, you know, who is really good at their craft, but they know, they know, they've, they've listened to, to Coltrane. They know that there's the, the blue notes. They know there's further places to go. And so that there, you're aware of that. But when you're in that, when you are Coltrane and you're blowing and you know it and you're aware of that, that would be sort of aware of having an unsurpassed mind or at knowing surpassed mind. This is concentrated or unconcentrated in a good meditative way. And this is, again, possibly related to that third geonic concentration and just being aware that you're in such a state of concentration or being aware that I'm not in such a state of concentration. And then finally, liberated, knowing that your mind has been liberated versus knowing, nope, I haven't been liberated yet. This mind has not been liberated. And one could place one's mindfulness, one's sati, one's mindfulness on the unliberated state and then focus on that unliberated state as an object of your awareness. And of course, that goes all the way through. Questions about these? Out of one to five, I sort of get a sense that I could know when I experience one, two, four, and five. Number three, I assume I always experience it to some degree. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't feel like it's something where I'm, I can just say, well, right now I'm experiencing a non-diluted cheetah mind state or cheetah Versus, oh, right now, you know, it, like if I'm angry, I'm, I've got that angry cheetah. But right now, I've got that diluted cheetah. It seems different in quality to me. Mm -hmm. um, is it just something where we should just say, well, just assume you've always got number three one until you get down that two or nine? Uh, sort of, yeah. But I wanted, would like to give you a a more. Uh, practical example of delusion so maybe you just like oh that oh um so yeah deluded is this big idea in buddhism right of like we're all deluded ignorant and all that we don't know what's going on but you can think of it as these like little small examples throughout our life um i've been trying to think of one um but it's about sort of like um misunderstandings in that sense of like, so let's say, um, I'm trying to find a good example, but it's about sort of like, if, if, like if, you, if, if we had two friends, uh, uh, 
Jane and Joan, right? And, and you said something about Jane, but I thought, I, I thought you said Joan. And I like Joan. And I don't, so why are you, so why, what do you have, why do you have a problem with Joan? So now I'm building up all these problems with you. But it's actually my deluded problem, right? Because I didn't hear you right. You were talking about Jane. And yeah, Jane's a... But you see... So, so the delusion is thinking that I was in the right and that you're wrong. And so one could then... Let's say that situation got rectified. I could then sit and be like, wow, you know, I, I was off the mark there. I was wrong. And in the same way that I've been saying all night... That train will not keep going because it was stopped it. And we've been like, oh, you know what? I had that wrong. That was my bad. Versus not owning up to uh, the things we get wrong in our delusion and just doubling down on, no, you're Joan. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's more of a, like a specific situational delusion than just the concept of general delusion of all humanity. It's both. There's some mistake going on. What I would like to do is show you that it operates at a very small level of just misunderstandings, and then those misunderstandings build up to bigger misunderstandings till it builds up to the big delusion of not knowing what's going on here. That all arises from a series of of misunderstandings and mistakes, beginning with the subject-object one. Just sneak that in there. (laughs) Okay, we're going to go on to some dharmas, and then I'll read a little bit from the sutra. Uh, the dharmas is the last one. The category, of course, in Pali, it's called dhamma, dhamma, or dharma. And in English, this could be pluralized because we're dealing with five teachings of the Buddha. That's a definition of dharma, teaching of the Buddha. But in this case, for this column, I like... Truths or principles. This idea of these like truths that are operating in the world or principles that are at work in the world. That's what a, these dharmas are in this category. In, in, in Buddhism, in this sutra, in this category, these are truths about the world or principles at work in the world. Namely, these five hindrances, the five aggregates, six sense bases, seven factors of enlightenment, and four noble truths. Let's talk for a brief moment about the five hindrances. So this is a teaching of the Buddha. There are many a sutra in which the Buddha talks about the five hindrances. These are the five things that keep us from mindfulness. Technically, they're the five five things that keep us from jhana, jhana, those deeper meditative states. Okay, And so the idea is, is that sensual desire, and I drew it in orange because it's about the pleasant, mainly, sensual desire is one of the hindrances. The idea is, is that when I'm sitting in my posture, and I'm like, okay, and I got my little meditation timer, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get into jhana, right? What happens, though, if I'm like, oh, but I could be watching Netflix. Oh, I could be going to get something to eat. Sensual desire is going to keep you from the jhana. And again, this is not judging. It's not saying bad sensual desire, bad. It's just recognizing that our desire for the things in this world 
is what keep us from the stillness. It's, or it's one of the five things that keep us from the stillness. Our desire to not be in the stillness. Again, uh, or not again, I'll say it just even bluntly. It's like boredom. You might have been there. Boredom is wanting sensual desire, wanting stimulation. It's like, I'm bored. Give it to me. I want to look at something. I want to eat something. I want to smell something. I want to take, you know, this way versus the contentment way. So sensual desire is a hindrance. And again, don't judge these things. Just notice the nuts and bolts of it of like, oh yeah, of course I couldn't get into a good jhana if I kept wondering what was on TV. It just isn't going to happen. Ill will, which is related to hatred, that's another one. If I'm sitting there seething about the guy that took my parking spot, nobody took my parking spot, by the way. I make all of these things up. But if I'm sitting here and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get into a good jhana, if only that mother... <laughs> right? If I'm sitting there, if, he, if it only weren't for him, I'd be in jhana. Right? That's like delusion on top of hatred, right? If it, were only, if it weren't for... So... Ill will will keep us from jhana. If we have it in our heart, we're not going to get there. Sloth and laziness, or sloth and torpor. Torpor is the traditional word, but they're talking about laziness. What's another reason you can't get into jhana? Because you're lazy. And again, not in a bad way, but just that it takes effort to do these things. And so if you're falling asleep on the mat, or if it's like, you know... 18 minutes and 50 seconds and then you just turn it off and you're like, that's good enough. That's laziness. That's sloth. You're not going to get into jhana if you're not going to put in the effort, right? And again, I just want you to know, or just, again, take note. It's not that these are being necessarily like called bad or just recognize that how it's going to keep you from a deep meditation. Just kind of obvious. Restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry. Definitely going to keep you from that calm mind space, right? And then the fifth one is doubt. It's an interesting one, doubt. But you could see, right, that if somebody was like, that stuff doesn't work. That person's never going to get into a jhana if they think that stuff doesn't work. If they have doubt. If they're like, there's no such thing as jhanic states or I don't believe you or whatever. How is that person who doubts it, how would they ever get into it, right? And so the giving up of the doubt is, in a way, what allows one to get into it in that sense. Questions about the five hindrances? All right, I'm not going to go through all these because it's 8 o'clock, and I'd like to read a little from the sutra. So the five aggregates, of course, are what make up the self. Um, All of these I wrote in black. The ears, the eye, the nose, the tongue, the body, they're all in black because they're made of form. We're also sensations. As I mentioned, Jordan's a bundle of sensations. I'm a bundle of sensations. His sensations are my sensations. So what the five aggregates are, are what's going on here if no self, according to the Buddha? What's going on here? Form, sensations, perception, conditioning, and ultimately consciousness. So again, the practice of mindfulness would be to meditate on these. And actually, I do need to say this. The Buddha is pretty clear that, say, for example, if I was going to now bring my attention to the aggregate of form, right? You might think, well, isn't that being aware of the body? 
Isn't that being aware of the form of the body? The unique thing about this category is that it's a, it would be about being aware of form in regards to the five aggregates. Being aware of sensual desire as it pertains to the five hindrances. So it's not actually contemplating being mindful of this thing in a little isolation. It's about being mindful of it as a dharma, as a truth. And part of this mudra is this interlocking truths, right? Um, the six sense spaces, of course, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and brain. Those are the six sense ayatanas, bases. Seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, the first one, sati. Investigating dharmas, energy, rapture, which comes from meditation, tranquility, which comes from meditation, concentration and equanimity. These are the four jhanas, by the way. That the first jhana is marked by rapture, the second one by tranquility, third one by concentration and equanimity. And then finally, the four noble truths, the dharma, the foundational teaching. But again, it would be being mindful of suffering, that life is suffering, but as it pertains to all four, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and finally the Eightfold Path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And that's it. <laughs> really quick, before I read, uh, just so I can clarify what's going on with that last category, the very, very, very first sutra, the Dharma Chakra Parvatanda Sutra, the Turning the Dharma Wheel Sutra, the Buddha taught that life is suffering, the origin of suffering is clinging and attachment, the sensation of suffering is when you don't cling, don't get attached, and the Eightfold Path is a practice, is a path, is a method for ceasing the clinging that produces suffering. So this was the first teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths. But in that sutra, he is said to have turned the Dharma wheel. And what that means to turn the Dharma wheel is that in that sutra, he says, these four noble truths should be understood. They should be understood, right? Then there is this understanding of them, the state of understanding them. And then there is this that it has fully been understood. So not just understood abstractly, but understood completely. So this idea of the suffering, that life is suffering. If I just told you that and said, you know, you should think about this. Yeah, I should think about that. You're right. That's one thing, that it should be thought about. The thinking about it, that's one thing. I'm thinking about it. And then that it has been thought about and been understood, like, God, I got it, Buddha. I got, you were right about that, by the way. I'm glad I thought about that. <laughs> Those are the three turnings. that it, Understanding that these things should be understood, trying to understand them, and then understanding them. Right? And so he even says that, and I didn't claim to be a fully enlightened Buddha until I had understood these four truths in those three ways. That I understood that they should be understood, understood them, and that they've been understood. The reason why I'm stressing this tonight about that that's how it works is that this stuff should be understood. There's a process for understanding it. And then there's the goal of all of this is when it has been understood. And so this ekayana, the single path, 
is about how to do that, the turning that I just described. Meaning, okay, great, this is a great chalkboard, but now what? How, what? Well, this should all be understood. And then let me know when you understand it all, right? So, again, I just, the reason why he's detailed this practice this way, as I often say, if I were to run out into the street and be like, everybody, everybody, suffering's being caused by attachment, right? Everybody on the street's going to be like, yeah, up here, shut up, (laughs) right? Because you can't just lay the Dharma like that. It actually starts with calming down. And it's only after all of this could you really understand the Eightfold Path. You see what I'm saying? So that's why this is a whole process. And I do understand how people say you could do this in a sit. I also understand how it's a practice to go in a sit. Not making any claims of having achieved anything, but that it could, I could be a practice of doing that. It could be a practice of just doing this. It could be a practice of just doing this. I'll tell you, I'm sort of right in between number one and two, basically. That's where I'm at. Most days I just focus on my breath, but I'm often trying to be very mindful of my body all the time. Like my, the Thich Nhat Hanh practice of mindful walking is an example of that, right? Where you're aware of when the ball of your foot is hitting, you're aware of when the heel, you're aware of all your toes. Most of us just walk, <laughs> But Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he does this uh, mindfulness of posture, meaning you're aware of the whole foot, everywhere it's touching. And that becomes a focus, a concentration, that then can produce these kind of liberated states. And that's something you do, you're walking all the time, you're breathing all the time, you're feeling all the time, all of that. Okay, let's read some Dharma. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The, this is one of those sutras that is extremely repetitive, meaning that the same language gets used for each of these. So I'm actually only going to read the first one, and you can apply the same language to all the rest. So I just want to read the beginning and the end. So just the breath, and then I want to... There's a kind of a funny punchline at the end. Of course. According to modern or whatever Buddhism, is it possible to achieve enlightenment in this world if you were to be aware or, you know, be able to achieve, like, the bottom? Mm-hmm. Of, you know. Yeah. Well, it will crack that and all that that you're talking about. Is it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. possible? Yeah. I mean, there's some... Some schools are a little more um, pessimistic about... The, they're sort of pessimistic about two things. They're pessimistic about the state of the world and they're pessimistic about how far we are, are removed from the Buddha. So they're a little skeptical about how this stuff has been translated and how accurate it is. So those folks are sort of like, yeah, we got a pretty good chance, but it's not guaranteed. But for most, it's like, the, this is all quite possible, but what gets a little debated is, is what does it actually mean to be enlightened? What does it actually mean to be at the very end and having both understood that it should be understood, understood it, and completely understood it? What does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, it's one of those things that I actually think it's really, um, well, first of all, I don't 
as a Buddhist, I don't think it's very helpful to think about other people's enlightenment in that way. So this is all very personal and only personal for in that sense, right? Um, and so the question of for one's own self, of course, also as a good Buddhist, maybe not being so goal-oriented. And so it's maybe just about that, uh, that single excellent night, as the Buddha says, right? Just that one single excellent night. Um, cool. Any other questions real quick? Cool. It's, it's really quick, uh, just at least the sections I want to read. Um, here we go. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in the Kuru country, where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasandama. And there he addressed the bhikkhus thusly, saying, Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, this is the Ekayana, the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating sensations as sensations, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind states as mind states, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, or dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, sets his body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I'm breathing in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I'm breathing out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I'm breathing in short. Or breathing out short, he understands, I'm breathing out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the body formation. Just as a skilled lathe operator or his apprentice, when making a long turn, understands, I'm making a long turn. Or when making a short turn, understands, I'm making a short turn. So too, breathing in long, a bhikkhu understands, I breathe in long. 
And he trains thusly, saying, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body, internally. He, abod he abides contemplating the body as a body externally. Or he abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. Or else he abides contemplating in the body its nature of arising. Or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing. Or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body as a body. Again, bhikkhus, when walking, a bhikkhu understands, I'm walking. When standing, he understands, I'm standing. When sitting, he understands, I'm sitting. When lying down, he understands, I'm lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however his body is. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That, too, is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Uh, yeah, so that's that. He goes on to full awareness, the body parts, all through there. And so he goes through all of them, same way, internally, externally, vanishing, all of that. All the way up through all the dharmas, all the way up through the four. And then in this way, he abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas internally, or he abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas externally, or he abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas both internally and externally, or else he abides contemplating in dharmas their nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in dharmas their nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in dharmas their nature of both arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness that there are dharmas is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating dharmas as dharmas in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Conclusion. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way as I have said, for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return, meaning non-rebirth in this world. Let alone seven years, bhikkhus. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, five years, four years, three, two years, one year, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of cling left, non-return. Let alone one year, bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, six months, five, four months, three months, 
for two months, for one month, for half a month, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. Let alone half a month, Bikus. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it is with reference to this that it was said, Bikus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That is what the Buddha said, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. All right. There you go. Questions? Straightforward, right? Um... Yeah, I think it's um, important to say that like, after he talks about each one of the foundations, he always repeats that um, that uh, it abides independently mm-hmm. and clings to nothing in the world. Mm-hmm. So like, keeps repeating that throughout the, the sutta. Mm-hmm. And I always like that's that line always stuck with me. It's like, what is it to abide independently? That's that's the name of the game. That's what I keep talking about every Sunday. When I talk about this idea of, of our joy or our happiness being dependent on the things in this world and the problem with that, because if they go away, our happiness goes away with them. He's talking about the independent. He's about talking about being completely independent of this world. Uh, that's a, a state that's like, whoa, really? Wow. And, right, independent not clinging to anything in the world. And again, that's the name of the Dharma game. I, I said it so many different ways, right? This is f- these noble truths of clinging and then suffering. And so he's saying that in this process, we become detached from these things. And, and I've said this so many times, I want to keep repeating it, you know, that the way I teach the Dharma here is, is this clinging is a... Is a, is a you know, it's an emotional disposition towards these things. It's an emotional attachment to the objects of this world that manifests in, in the form of ownership. So where I say, I own this, it's mine. And then all of the things that come with that in terms of if somebody else takes it or uses it, what's going on there, right? That's a, so ownership is a form of clinging, right? Um, uh, just anything, anything is a form, even if you don't own it. Right? You, go, you want it. You go in the shop and you really want the object or something, right? That's a form of clinging and attachment. So all of the, uh, I keep kind of bringing back that it's this emotional disposition towards these objects. And the reason why I keep emphasizing that is because Buddhism doesn't necessarily want us to be monks and renunciates in that sense of abandoning it, the world. What the this dharma, all of this dharma would like us to do is work on that emotional disposition towards the things of this world. And again, what I mean by that is, is that Buddhism, you can admire the bull. You could use the bull. You could share the bull. You do all of these things and it won't hurt anybody. It won't hurt you. But as soon as you're like, but it's my bull. Or as soon as you have that clinging or ownership, 
it's just going to bring suffering. It's not going to bring about anything else but suffering is the idea. If you, you see what I mean, it's like a, it's a real snowball that as soon as there's the, no, it's mine. Well, now we're in a whole new world, aren't we? Right? Because it really deeply affects, actually, I'm just thinking of this right now, how much it affects all of us when I say, this is mine. Right? Because now all of a sudden you're cut off from it in some weird way because of what I've done. And again, I would ask you to think about this in that kind of, um, that way of, oh, so what if we all did this Dharma thing? Versus, oh, what if we all did the clinging thing, which we are all doing, and that's called samsara. But, so yeah, just like kind of do that kind of flip in your mind of like, oh, yeah, what if we all looked at it this way? Or what if we all did it that way? And then, you know, I, I mentioned this German guy, Immanuel Kant before, but Kant, this moral ethicist, has this idea, which is the, the, the moral maxim, that if you can do that, if you can take an action and apply it to everybody and say, okay, let's make that the rule for everybody. Does this still hold water? Does this still work? And the idea is that if we all were like, no, this is about clinging and attachment. Let's all cling hard. Uh, Does that work out? Let's do the math on this. Does that work out in the long run? But if we all decided to not cling and attach, let's do the math on that and see how that works out in the long run. Right? So, questions, ideas, comments. Any other, you know, this is it. This is the, we're going to do the idea of mindfulness all month, but this is going to be the only night explicitly on the four foundations. So if you've had, had any burning questions. <laughs> I have a wild comment. It's going to be short. But I have to do, do it. It's so delightful first. Like, <laughs> because there's a couple of things. My comment from what I learned from last week, the pile the Mario Brothers, right? Imagine the Mario Brothers, right? Like 45 stages to get to the end, right? <laughs> 45 rounds or whatever, challenges. Levels. Levels. You cannot put, there's one to 45. You cannot put 44 in the second one, right? You have to have, right? There's a progression. Yep. Yep. The same with those, you know? Right? There is a subtleties of challenges, right? But you move on from one to another, right? And that's the single path. That idea of a single path, like wherever you are, this is a round, right? And specifically on the cheetah code. Hmm. The lesson that we like. We start with great hatred and delusion. That's like the samadhi of life. Hmm. Right? So the progression. Yes. From all the way 1 to 45 there. This is how we encounter naturally. It's, it's amazing design. I agree. Incredible. I never understood mindfulness like today. And after my Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and on that note, you know, about the idea of starting here, the idea is, is that to take that step back and be aware of our own mind state, yeah, you can't just jump to that without breathe awareness of the body, coming to that centeredness. And this is where I understand how you could do this all in a sit. But you gotta start here. Yeah. You gotta center yourself, breathing, body posture, the whole thing. Now we kind of, yeah. Thank you.
Question. So reading the sutta, it was saying that if there's no claiming, then there's no rebirth. Yes. Is that going back to what I asked you the other day yep. about uh, reincarnation? And then so meaning like if we get liberated, essentially break the cycle, we, I mean, yep. uh, resolve issues, whatever. Yep. We're not in the bar, we're not in the... Yeah, and it's a really hard, I mean, it's the state of Buddhahood, the state of enlightenment, the state of nirvana is actually as paradoxical and, uh, you know, whatever as it sounds, it's actually being liberated, meaning being so present and being so not concerned about the future, so not concerned about the future that the future kind of in a way literally doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You're so in the present moment. That's sort of the goal of Buddhism and that sort of state transcends the reincarnation process because one is put... Well, it's too late for me to give you the larger story about all of that reincarnation business, but the basic idea in Buddhism is that in some other schools of Indian thinking, we keep getting reincarnated because of our past actions and our past karma that needs to get worked out. The Buddhist view is a little more that we keep getting reincarnated because we love it here. We're attached. And as long as we're attached, we're going to keep coming back. You know, you could think of it as the, as the, an analogy I like to use is, you know, every night we go to different dream worlds, but we're not really attached to them. And so we keep coming back to the world that we're attached to. And it's not that this is any more real than those other ones. It's just this is the one you like the most. So it's the realist, it's the most consistent, it's the most contiguous, all of that. All the ones that you don't cling to, they seem rather phantasmical, right? They're a little more come, easy come, easy go. Interesting, right? So it's just a sort of a subtle way of thinking about reincarnation from a Buddhist point of view, that we keep waking up in this one because we like it. And, we, and that gives us total liberation to then, or sorry, total freedom (laughs) to be liberated because we oh it's like oh i just have to just not cling to to end the whole reincarnation process right here right now really (laughs) yeah really it's hard it's difficult because we like it but no um thinking of the difference between um the emphasis on um impermanence versus emptiness in in the sutra if i'm not mistaken there's uh it, you are, it is suggested that you notice the arising, the yes. and the falling of whatever it is. You yep. Know, the sun breath, yep. the posture, etc. Yep. That speaks to impermanence. Absolutely. Is there something in there that speaks to emptiness in the same way? Only hidden in those five aggregates. Only hidden in the, in the dharmas. And this is... You know, I wanted to mention this really quickly too. Like, I did my whole series on the formless realms as focuses of meditation. In a way, I should have done this first, but I kind of always, I assume everybody always knows this, and so we go further with the formless realms, further with the signless, all of that. The reason why I say all of that is that this is like the training wheels. This is the basic stuff that is still in this world, still based on the elements, which are not empty, are form, and so based on the elements and all of that. So yeah, this is sort of the training wheels to get the mind straight in that way. With the idea that full comprehension of those dharmas would bring about an innate understanding of no self and emptiness. 
but there's nothing explicitly empty about any of this, as far as I can tell. Or, or about the instructions. Yeah, the... yeah. It's all very starting with the world, and then, in a way, ending in equanimity. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have another question. <laughs> <laughs> all right. um, I have a, a very uh, strong reaction always to the to the doubt hindrance, mm. and it's sort of. I think the way I've been interpreting it is, um, you know, uh, from a um, from the perspective of other religions, like you know, doubt is a bad thing because you just believe, and it's true because it's true. Oh, it's yeah. like it's a little bit of a tautology. It's like, yep. oh well, you know, you're not doing well because you're doubting. If you stop doubting, you do well. But what? <laughs> yes. Why shouldn't I doubt? You know, so so something you said this evening about. Not, I, I think I was thinking of doubt as being the opposite of belief in yep. a way, and I'm thinking maybe of like skipping that part and just mm-hmm. letting go of the doubt. Doesn't mean I believe anything. Exactly. The Buddhist principle is you shouldn't believe anything, you should experience it. Exactly. Not that I'm a super doubty, but it's just the word. Of course. I'm like, no, and I think you're right that the, the way it's normally used is contra belief. Yeah. And that just doesn't factor into this. Yeah. And belief doesn't factor into Buddhism too much. And so, yeah, I think doubt is being used in that slightly different way where you can just, uh, yeah, let go of doubt without clinging to belief as a, yeah. as a okay. default. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for coming out. Ta-da. 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 Oh, my pleasure. And like I said, it's Mindfulness Month.